0: Drabblecast B-Sides, Episode 14, Uneasy Lies the Head That Wears the Clown, by Fraser Sherman. In this scathing book review of the novel, it is that I may not weep. We meet big-shot New York City hedge fund manager Tony Wolfe, who wakes up one morning to find out he's not quite the man he used to be. Frasier Sherman's an England-born, Durham, North Carolina-based freelancer whose credits include stories in Allegory, Big Pulp, Tales of the Talisman, and Realms of Fantasy. He's also the author of three film reference books. Check out his blog at frasiersherman.wordpress.com. So get out your portfolios and grease paint. We bring you Uneasy Lies the Head That Wears the Clown by Fraser Sherman. Brent Lynch's Labyrinth of Faces. It pains me to give a negative review of his sophomore novel, It Is That I May Not Weep. The book starts brilliantly, but it declines as it progresses when it finishes with platitudes worthy of a second-rate Frank Capra film. Did you know, for example, that it's who you are inside that counts? The book opens in New York, where hedge fund manager Tony Wolf Lynch acknowledges the name as a tip of the hat to Bonfire of the Vanities. Completely convinced that his success proves him a Superman straight out of an Ayn Rand novel, wakes up groggy and realizes his new hair transplant appears to have fallen out. If only. When he checks the mirror, he has bright orange hair stretched out in two wings on either side of his head. Plus, a face now completely covered in clown white and massive red lips. He has, in short, woken up, transformed into a clown. After several minutes of scrubbing his face and cutting the hair, Wolf realizes that neither the clown white nor the new hair is going to come off. Lynch then plunges into a frantic, absurdist account of Wolf discovering his tailored suits are now a closet full of clown suits, forcing him to rush to Brooks Brothers wearing a clown costume and making a small child cry at the sight of him, and enduring the humiliation of buying off the rack. As he rushes to his office, Wolf remains acutely conscious that even in a dark suit, he still looks like a clown. At his office, Wolf tries to isolate himself until he can figure out who played the joke on him and how. His efforts fall apart when he discovers the ongoing financial crisis has put multiple investor accounts in jeopardy and that several borderline illegal deals he's arranged have just gone south. Lynch does a remarkable job showing us how Wolf's financial house of cards works. I've rarely seen professional financial reporters explain Wall Street fraud this well. Wolf begins damage control, confident his company is too big to fail and that he can escape any serious consequences. But what he hasn't taken into account is his new face. Over the course of a very long day, Wolf discovers that no one who sees him face to face, not the SEC, nor the presidential staffer he meets with, can accept him as a serious player anymore. What then follows is a long interior monologue vividly depicting Wolf's sense of himself as an alpha male, one who can pull the strings of... Quote, the big trust fund zombies who could lose five mil without noticing. The status seekers who just know that having more money will reveal the demigod inside them. The Wall Street ex-jocks who think they're the man behind the curtain. It gives a vivid sense of the man and cuts off short before it becomes tedious. It also shows how very great Wolf's fear is of having someone else pulling his strings. Of being the puppet instead of the puppeteer. The Puppeteer Despite Wolf's loathsome personality, Lynch makes us feel the full weight of his misery as he finds neither his wife nor his mistress can bring themselves to provide sex when he looks like this, even when he offers to take them from behind so they can't see the clown white. His mistress, Sheena, supposedly an in-joke reference to Charlie Sheen's turn in Wall Street, though Lynch hasn't confirmed that, has a hysterically black-humored rant about what she's put up with from lovers over the years, and that she draws the line at clown dick. Wolf's response is to convince himself that his wife, a shrewish, castrating bitch stereotype, the novel's first false note, is somehow responsible for his transformation, which results in an assault, and then a restraining order. He discovers once again that looking like a clown changes everything. Even his own lawyer can't take his explanation seriously. Locked out of his house, frozen out of his bank accounts and assets, rejected by his mistress and facing federal charges over his business deals, Wolf plunges into a desperate search to make sense of his face. He talks to priests of several churches, a rabbi, a philosophy professor, and an imam. And it's here the novel comes unstuck. Lynch's portrait of religious believers and labyrinth of faces was judgmental but wickedly true to life. Here they are willfully blind buffoons who can only respond to Wolf's impossible situation with recycled clichés about God's ways being mysterious and what a great chance this is for Wolf to turn to God. None of them come across as individuals which leads to Wolfe concluding that, quote, even if all gods are not one god, people of faith were apparently interchangeable. Presumably that's the impression Lynch wanted to convey, but it doesn't work. Wolf is now more despondent than ever, but a ray of hope appears when he learns Ringling Brothers are auditioning possible clowns. Desperate for some sort of income, he tries out and discovers that while the universe may make a fool of him, he can't bring himself to make a fool of himself. Drinking with some of the carnies afterwards, he gets the only useful help anyone offers in the book—advice from Helen of Trojan, a hooker whose pragmatic street sense is presented as the down-to-earth alternative to the windy philosophizing of all the religious elites. And it's a completely convincing scene, because as everyone knows, drunken prostitutes are the ideal source of advice in existential crisis. It doesn't help that Helen's advice doesn't run any deeper than, quote, Everyone wears a mask. I wear a mask. Your mistress wore a mask. What freaks people out is that they can see your mask. But isn't it who you are under the mask that counts? Wolf has apparently never encountered the concept that money, mansion, jaguar, etc. might not matter as much as his inner life to the extent he has one. Certainly none of the people he talked to while searching for meaning suggested it. But Helen's words convince him that he's still the same master of the universe he always was, and that Clown White is just an obstacle to overcome. Lynch conveys that at this point, Wolf is transitioning from an Agust, a clown buffoon who gets slapped, to a white face. An Alpha Clown. How do you become an alpha male when your face is covered in grease paint? Wolf runs for political office, making a pitch to the Tea Party movement, a topical reference that may date almost as fast as a Saturday Night Live sketch. He turns his face into a statement about the absurdity of Washington. Quote, sure I'm a clown, but so is everyone else in the government. I did like the touch that since he's a complete turnoff to every woman, the money men realize he's safe from sexual scandal and back him to the hilt, correctly figuring that while arcane financial scandals can be overlooked, sex can't. Even so, Lynch doesn't give Wolf any positions to run on besides laughing at Washington and pointing out contradictions in his opponent's platform. It's not just that it's unbelievable he proceeds to win, it's that Lynch has the talent for far more biting satire. This barely passes muster for a West Wing episode. And then... The night of his victory celebration, an African-American minister shows up, introducing himself as the second coming of Jesus, and explains everything—why Wolf's transformation happened, why it had to happen, and what his options are from this point on. Wolf, astonishingly, doesn't question any of this or ask for proof, because that allows him—and Lynch—to challenge God in what amounts to a face-to-face debate. As readers of Labyrinth of Faces can imagine, God doesn't do too well, being as ineffective as the religious leaders earlier when peppered with Lynch's questions. This turns Lynch's moral bankrupt, utterly selfish protagonist into the voice of morality in the book. Up until this point, Lynch has ripped apart philosophy and faith. Now, for the first time, he offers his alternative. Unfortunately, it doesn't amount to much beyond good being better than evil because it's nicer. Lynch clearly thinks he's making a serious point, but it's impossible to take it seriously when it comes from the mouth of the thoroughly unnice wolf. Even the first superior part of the book has severe flaws, though I still found it great reading. Lynch emphasizes how much success is based on illusion, reputation, style, attitude, and not actual accomplishment, and manages to make this feel like a fresh insight. He then turns around and points out that the same is true of failure. Wolf has the identical skills he possessed the day before, but because he no longer looks like a success, success becomes unattainable. But then Lynch completely undercuts himself by comparing Wolf to Shelley Nevins, the real-life transgender stockbroker who recently lost her discrimination lawsuit against her employer. Sorry, Mr. Lynch, but wearing clown white isn't the same as being transgendered, and Wolf doesn't suffer the same penalty. Wolf gets laughed at, transgender individuals get assaulted. I can remember a time when writers couldn't challenge homophobia directly, but we're long past the days when they had to use symbolic substitutes. If Lynch really wanted to make a point about transgender discrimination, why not create a transgender character instead? Lynch remains an amazing talent, but in It Is That I May Not Weep, he's just clowning around. Hey, I had to endure his clown jokes. Why shouldn't he endure mine? This story was brought to you by Drabblecast Productions and was produced with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The artwork was provided by Brian Walker. Brian's a printmaker in Huntsville, Alabama, where he carves portraits of unhealthy states of mind and other creatures who all sport strange nipples. He keeps his artwork on braintwist.net and gets it all done at Makers Local 256, Alabama's first hackerspace. For more great stories and audio brought to you each and every week, check out The Drabblecast at www.drabblecast.org. A priest, a rabbi, and a philosopher walk into a bar.